Hello and welcome to Behind the Frontline podcast. The podcast that asks the very simple question, how can we change the world? I'm your host, Dr. Adil Khan. In this season, I will be chatting with expert guests to try and understand how COVID-19 impacts society in different ways. I hope to share the insights of these great minds with you and hope to inspire you to change the world. Please remember to rate and subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcast. I look forward to your comments and your reviews. You are welcome to send me a voice note using the links below to be featured in future episodes. Imagine having a hospital in your home. Why would you want this? Well, hospitals are, ironically, inhospitable places, actually. There are a growing number of so-called superbugs, which are only found there. People often develop other medical problems while they are admitted, and then not to mention the extremely high cost of hospital treatment, both in the private and public sector. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we became acutely aware of how hazardous the hospital environment actually is. We developed anxiety of when needing to go to the hospital in fear of contracting COVID, and we heard horror stories of family members bringing loved ones to the hospital because of COVID and not being able to see them at all due to restrictions. Curo Medical is a digital health company that is challenging the status quo. In this health tech feature, I speak with founder and CEO Dr. Vuyani Mklomi. We learn how Curo leverages cutting-edge remote monitoring technology to solve this complex problem of our over-reliance on hospitals to administer healthcare. Fuyani, thank you for your time and welcome to Behind the Frontline podcast. Could you tell listeners a little bit more about yourself? Um, my name is Fuyani Mshomi. I come from a township in, in Cape Town called Pailicha. Grew up, raised there by a single parent and uh, had the fortune of completing medicine at the University of Cape Town. I then uh, moved up to Johannesburg to complete my internship where I fell in love with Johannesburg and, and, and all the opportunities that it had to offer. Um, in my second year of my internship, I, 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 and I interviewed successfully for the Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford where I went up to, to, to read a default. You know, it was a largely uh, cardiovascular medicine you know, research, but focusing on, on obstetrics and gynecology and how we potentially could prevent maternal deaths. I then stayed an additional year to, to do an MBA, you know, because, you know, the, the, the PhD journey is incredibly lonely, right? It, it forces you to reflect on, on really what your impact would be. And up until that point, I was in a, 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 an almost prescribed tract that discouraged me from thinking about ever stepping out. And I think this was the first time I was able to get out and, and truly reflect um, on, on what it is I wanted to do. And this opportunity really allowed me to recognize that I've always been entrepreneurial and that there've been several you know, ways in which I've demonstrated that throughout my journey, but I just had found myself in, you know, a, a, I guess, within the healthcare space. And I, and I believe this was the only thing I could ever do. And for the first time, I was able to kind of step back and, rea- and realize that this, you know, being a doctor is one of the many things that I can do. So how else can I, can I be impactful in this space? And um, it was during that time when we were really just reflecting on the, the kind of problems within the healthcare and how we can solve them. And, and that's really how, how Cure Medical you know, was born. I was, I was doing my MBA, we were, in, you know, we were in Oxford 
um, you know, a big problem that they have there is that there are a lot of patients that are due for home discharge but are not. And this problem was costing the NHS about 81 million, you know, pounds within, um, you know, every year. Uh, and also what was particularly interesting is that the, the cost of a hospital bed, yeah. right, in the, in the United Kingdom is more expensive than the cost of a, a, a queen bedroom at the Ritz Hotel in London, <laughs> right, which makes absolutely no sense for patients you are not actually adding value to. We spend a lot of time thinking about this, as you mentioned, sort of high-tech solution given its various compositions, but we've also felt that it would lend itself particularly well here. And our philosophy has always been quality and expense should not be, low cost shouldn't be necessarily mutually exclusive, right? So in other words, you know, just because something is high-tech doesn't mean you cannot innovate um, and make it a lot more affordable and accessible to everyone. And, and that's always been our philosophy. Our philosophy is don't compromise on the value. Yeah. right there are ways in which you can structure the model to make it accessible to everyone and that's really our, our driving uh, motivation as a company we are developing premium you know healthcare solutions to achieve two things one of which is geographical accessibility the second one is um, financial accessibility the actual company though Curo, which you've founded recently and it's now quite operational could you very briefly give an overview exactly what it is that you offer so Cure Medical is by and large a digital health company and we're developing different premium healthcare solutions. We leverage technology to harness and improve the, and harness the best of our people to improve the well-being of others. Um, our flagship offering is what we call Hospital at Home that leverages our technology to provide a disruption to the traditional sort of hospitalization market, which requires people to be treated in general wards. If you go across this country and you look at the patients that are admitted to general wards, many of them could be successfully managed at home. In fact, a huge proportion of them could be managed at home. The problem is that there hasn't been an economic model to achieve that. There hasn't been a technology available to be able to provide that monitoring. But also there hasn't been the buy-in from the, the kind of key stakeholders, the doctors and the patients to enable that shift. And what we've been able to do is develop an ecosystem that achieves just that, where we are able to leverage our technology, which you know, focuses on real-time patient monitoring or remote patient monitoring, plus, you know, care coordination to provide care for these patients um, at home. I, I really like the way that, that you described it as, as a hospital at home. But I think for, for many listeners and people not inside the medical fraternity, they wouldn't be aware that there's been a strong move of late to move away from this hospital-centric care and have a more community-based care. You know, in people's minds, a hospital is the, the pillar of the health system. You know, that's where you go if you're sick. And that's where all the specialists are. That's where all the special equipment is. So could you make a good case or could you perhaps explain to listeners why it, it is important for these solutions, why it's important for us to have solutions outside of the hospital? I mean, consider the history, right? Patients were treated at home. Part of the reasons why hospitals were built, because um, you know, the reason was that, you know, we wanted to have centers of excellence that were affordable, where we can, con you know, concentrate resources to be able to address the very problems that the patients have, right? It was meant to be a cost-effective and time-efficient alternative for people, right? However, we've got to a point in history where that was no longer the case, right? Hospitals are neither expensive, they are, they, they carry dangerous bugs, Mm. Right? Patients develop new impairments. So studies have repeatedly showed that patients go in with one problem and they come out with another, 
right? And most importantly, we are, we are seeing escalating costs of care without a commensurate increase in healthcare outcomes. Patients are miserable. They don't want to be treated there. Mm-hmm. Costs are high, but also from a clinical and healthcare outcome perspective, we are not deriving value for the amount that we pay, right? And as it usually happens, you know, there's always, you know, some kind of trigger within the kind of historical process that shifts people into a different environment, despite the long-standing evidence, right, of patients needing to be treated at home and the benefits of treating at home. In particular, in this country, we had, we had entrusted the incumbents to kind of innovate around the space, right? So we entrusted the big hospital groups and you know, a sort of you know, individuals that were incredibly hospice-centric to come up with creative models that provide cost-effective care. But if you were to look at the size of the market and the benefits of maintaining the status quo, no wonder there hasn't been a reason for us to shift despite the very clear benefits. And therefore, for the patient who was initially dependent on, on a system where they actually do require hospitalization and, and so on and so forth, all we are presenting as a company is a viable alternative you know, for those patients. And I guess I want to conclude this particular point by saying and, and highlighting the, the, the limitations of the, the current system, and that is, what happens to that patient when hospitals are full? When the in-hospital environment is the highest, because we keep talking about super spread events, you know, as far as COVID-19, where the hospital environment itself is a super spreader site, right? Where all you have is a simple pneumonia and you need IV antibiotics and oxygen, where there is a viable alternative for you to get that care, in the comfort of your own home and have that be covered, you know, be it by your medical aid or privately and have it more affordable, why are we not then being able to offer that solution to the patient? And this is why we exist as a company. One of those cataclysmic seismic shifts, surely, I mean, you alluded to, has to be COVID. For the first yeah, time, for, for the first time, it's become very apparent to a lot of people that the hospital is this inhospitable environment, as ironic as that sounds. And could you take us through what your experience has been like through COVID and how has the COVID experience expedited your business process? We started this company pre-COVID, right? You know, we had been engaging with the different players and the various stakeholders in the space pre-COVID. I will be honest and say it was definitely harder to sell our offering, you know, then because I think it becomes very difficult, right? So when you're caught up in a particular cycle and way of doing things, it becomes very, very difficult for you to kind of shift from there. And once people recognized the limitations of the current system, people then were a lot more willing to, to explore alternatives. But most importantly, you know, we, we, we talk about, um, you know, for example, hospital-acquired infections, right, um, as a potential threat and new impairments, right? Um, unless you've had that experience, it is very difficult to conceive of them. But here we had some, a real-time experience for a lot of people who would go in with you know, COVID-free, come out with COVID. So the, the, the impact or the problem was real, right? And the experience of them were, were, was real for doctors alike as well, right? They, it was very clear that they needed a different solution for their patients, you know, in the same case there. And I think as a result, people were, you know, were, were able to readily buy into our offering than they were back, um, back then. And we hope to then continue, I guess, um, you know, offering the service as we gain more and more control of COVID. Could you talk us through then what a typical user experience may be? 
let's say, you know, I have a family member, does contract COVID, does not require invasive ventilation, doesn't require ICU stay, but just requires a, a little bit more care. You as a, as a doctor wouldn't ordinarily be comfortable just sending them home. That, that is, if I'm understanding correctly, the, the segment that you're looking at. Because first of all, no. if point wasn't made before, that this solution isn't for everybody. You know, there are certain conditions and certain times when you have to be in hospital for a number of reasons. But in that segment of people, which is a, a chunk of people that could benefit from this hospital at home, could you talk us through what a typical user experience would be like? I'm going to use a, a non-COVID example first, sure. right? For, for the purposes of, of kind of demonstrating this actually is a, is a, is a non-COVID, I mean, benefiting from a COVID perspective. But, I, you know, one of the things I'm actually trying to do is to kind of separate this from it just purely being a, a COVID-19 proposition. So let's consider, for example, a, a simple case of, of a patient who has a, a, a lung infection. That could be a young person, old person, etc. And, and, and these infections can, can vary. We call this pneumonia. And, um, and, and they can vary in, in how they present. You've got a patient who will be okay by taking antibiotics and they are fine. But you also have those patients, for example, that need, let's say, oxygen support or the nature of the infection requires IV you know, antibiotics through the vein. Um, and right now, the only place where such care is provided is in the hospital space, right? Where you need oxygen, you need IV therapy. Those are literally the only conditions. And of course, a doctor, for example, may want things like no physiotherapy for that patient if, if, if there is another cause. So right now, it's, it's been the case that you can only get that in, in, in a hospital. A doctor can now, in the same way that the service is offered in lieu of hospital admission, once a definitive diagnosis is put and there's a very clear plan, the doctor can then refer that patient um, to Cura Medical. In the context of the private sector, a referral form is completed as they would in the context of a hospital and, um, and pre-authorization is granted by the medical aid and our clinical team would go in and, um, and, and set up and we meet the patient wherever is most conducive, right? Whether it's at the doctor's practice, in the hospital or at their home. All our technology that we use is, is wireless um, and so we're not talking about clunky, you know, technology and a lot of wires, mm -hmm. right? It's... We give the people the complete monitoring kit, one of which is a core chest, is a, one of our core technologies is a, is a chest biosensor, so it's a little patch. It looks like a band-aid that sits on the patient's chest that allows us to collect the vital sign information. We also give them a, a dedicated relay device, which is basically a customized phone, um, fully internet enabled with all the other things that they need. What that does is that it, it then collects information from the patient in real time, minute by minute, transmits that information to a dedicated command center, which we run as a 24-hour command center that is run by qualified clinical professionals. So while the patient moves around in the home, while they sleep, while they go on by their sort of day-to-day -day activities, you know, patients are, um, they know that they are being monitored in real time. For the patient who's on hospital at home, they, the average admission is five days. And for three of those five days, they actually get clinical visits by a, one of our clinical care members. So they would get examined as they would in the context of the hospital. If there's medication that needs to be administered, that would be administered as one would in the context of the hospital. The difference here is that in addition to the in-person visits, um, when our clinical team member is not present and seeing that patient, the patient is, you know, we, we are able to provide that continuous, you know, monitoring. And so at the, our eyes are never off the patient. 
right? So we continue that care, um, patient recovers, and um, if their doctor says, you know, and then the doctor conducts virtual ward rounds through our platform to follow up on how the patient is. So the, the doctor is always involved in the care of that particular patient. And at the, and at the end of that process, the, the, the doctor then would say, okay, I'm happy for this person to be discharged, or I'd like, you know, um, for, for them to have an extended stay. So discharge summary would be created and, um, and then would subsequently follow up with that patient. If something were to go wrong, if they were to deteriorate, to a point where they would need more invasive care. What mechanisms do you have in place to address that? Sure. So one of the cool things, and, I, and again, I'll illustrate here, right? So there's something called respiratory rate, right? Respiratory rate is the number of times you breathe per minute, okay? It is one of the vital signs that are monitored in the hospital alongside heart rate and blood pressure and you know oxygen saturations, which because of COVID, everyone is a lot more familiar with now. Respiratory rate goes down at least six hours before cardiac arrest, but we are bad at monitoring it, right? So in terms of a single predictor of clinical deterioration, it actually, is, it actually provides exceptional value. And this is just giving but one parameter. The beautiful thing about being able to monitor patients continuously, and I'm talking about minute by minute data, is that you don't only are able to pick up when a patient is deteriorating, but you can actually anticipate this right? And so you can actually predict that, you know, Adil is, you know, showing signs of deterioration. He hasn't deteriorated yet. So in other words, your physiology is giving an indication of what could be problem before you manifest physically or clinically, right? And we're able to track that and then subsequently activate our rapid response protocols. So that can take anything between increased visit by our clinical team right through to activating one of our EMS partners, which is emergency medical services partners, who come in within 10 minutes, sweep that patient, and then take them into definitive care. But the difference here is that because this is in lieu of general admission, when they go back, they either go back into high care or ICU. I, I guess what some listeners may not appreciate is that the hospital environment in itself, even though you are inside the hospital building and you are meant to have 24-hour nursing care, unless you are in the high care ICU setup, the view that the healthcare worker has a view is sporadic. And if you are, if your condition isn't unstable, it can be four to six hours at a time. So in, in fact, that fear that people may have that having a hospital at home, people are not being watched or I'm not being in close proximity to a healthcare professional at all times. If you actually think about it, and if you actually, if you actually compare it against what the level of attention is versus a solution like yours, which gives you up to second uh, vital information, it's, it's actually in favor of for you rather than the other way around, which is incredible to think about. 100%, right? And so, and I'm glad you, you're speaking about this, um, Adele, because, you know, the proximity, and that is sort of the, you know, the, the relative proximity to safe, you know, to perceived, you know, safety and access if you deteriorate, that being in the general world gives you is exactly that, is this false sense of safety, yeah. right? Because, if that's the case, surely we should be able to anticipate and respond, right? And this, is, and this unfortunately is not the case. And in fact, given the robustness of our monitoring technology, we've actually been asked by a few hospitals to use this in the general ward specifically, right? Because they also recognize the limitations of that particular environment. And so the fact that we've been able to and continue to do so 
demonstrate value of this technology in a remote environment really allows us to shift patients away from general wards and manage those at home. You actually just read my mind. If there's value in the anticipation of when somebody can deteriorate based on, on monitoring, you know, surely an, a logical step would be to apply it in, in the general ward. But perhaps that brings me to my next set of questions, which is what else can be done? How else can you leverage this technology? How else can you leverage your place? Could you share any examples of solutions on the horizon or just, you know, any ideas for, for the future? Sure, just very quickly about this. So remember that the problem we're solving here, it's a healthcare problem, it's a broader problem to just remote monitoring. We need to accept and realize the limitations of hospitals. They're great for some people, not great for everyone. And so the fact that you are then able to bring in and introduce this technology does not address the issue of, you know, these hospital-acquired infections, does not address the issue of cost, does not address the issue of of, of development of, of new impairments, you know what I mean? Um, and, and so it only solves one problem, right? And this is why from our side that just purely, you know, finding, you know, a hospital and then giving them the, the technology, it, it really does not allow us to, to, to respond to the broader problem which is required here. And that is, you know, you know, coming up with solutions that actually give holistic value to the patient, right? Um, and, and that's really what we're trying to achieve here. We just leverage technology to do so. But also just to, to talk about that, I think that there are several opportunities to kind of leverage, you know, remote monitoring technology in particular. One of the settings um, that we're deploying this is, you know, we've got one of the highest maternal and fetal mortality rates, you know, um, and, and infant mortality rates. And, um, and, and because we, we do not have, you know, the, we have the most reformed of policies, but implementation is slightly different. And I think there's opportunities to, to leverage you know, our ability to, to monitor, for example, um, you know, women. For those of you that, that, that have been pregnant or have been in, in, in that environment, you'll remember that when a woman is pregnant, you know, um, particularly as they go into labor, there's a little machine that they could connect to. It looks like the, the kind of a heart rate monitor that, 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 that gives a trend, right? Now, you give that trend, so we call that a CTG. So if you were to give that CTG to five different um, you know, specialists, right? So five, five different obstetrics and gynecology specialists, right? You will have five different interpretations of that. <laughs> you also need five different managements, right? And so that's okay if you live in the metropolitan area in Johannesburg, right? And you can divide these, these kind of opinions. It isn't okay if I am sitting somewhere in Soweto mm. and what it will require of me is when I have a, a particular problem to get into a taxi, travel to a Baraguana hospital, wait in those long queues, go through that process only to be told my child is fine, right? The question then becomes, how do you then simplify the interpretation of that process and build that in? And we've been able to, to kind of, you know, um, develop a solution that addresses just that in simplifying, for example, the ability to, to interpret that information into numerical values, right? And, and therefore, the only, instead of looking at a different interpretation, there's an alignment of what that is, but most importantly, the ability to put that technology in the most remote communities. And you now start empowering even the midwife who has to see this patient, connects them to their own sort of CTG trace, and then a, a decision is made about whether um, harm is coming to this baby or not, right? And so we're looking at ways in which we can con you know, continuously leverage technology because then on the back of that, you can actually prevent and, and significantly reduce both the mortality that may come to the mother and the child. 
And there are a few other, you know, opportunities that incorporate both pathology and radiology, introducing diagnostic components, you know, in, in the interpretation of, 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 of such data as well, which we will talk about in time. I'm so glad that you mentioned, you know, the, the Soweto's and the townships and the rural areas, because one of one of the, the focuses of this podcast is, is, is solutions that, that focus on low and middle income communities and, and countries. And the question that, that I had, as you were speaking previously, was how much of a solution is the hospital at home, for example, for an impoverished rural community? I fully appreciate what you said about the, the remote fetal monitoring. And especially if the, that monitoring can be set up in a satellite clinic, which links back to a central hospital. Absolutely. But let's, let's take a step back to hospital at home. Do you foresee that type of solution maybe with adaptations being a solution for lower income settings. And if it needs adaptations, you know, please, please describe what the, those are. And, and the, the, the main reason that, that I bring this up is because it's something else that we've discussed on this, this platform before is this concept of the, the, the digital divide. And what we've unpacked previously is that it's not necessarily to say that people in low and middle income countries don't have access to digital solutions, but we need policymakers and we need solutions that bring them on board rather than leaving them behind. And I just wanted you to, to speak us through how we could bring people in on board, especially in those, you know, those, as I mentioned, the township rural areas. Our vision is to provide healthcare to people who are in the so-called last mile of health. That is an unwavering commitment from our side. But that also requires a particular process, right? Which you demonstrate the value of this in a controlled setting for, and I'm putting controls in the, in the inverted commas here. Um, and there are several other things that one needs to solve for, right? Beyond just the infrastructure related issues, you need to, there are economic considerations. And what does that look like in those settings, right? And to further demonstrate, you know, our commitment in, in, in this space is, you know, we, we, you know, part of our offering and, and how we've structured the solution is the patient just needs to show up. Everything else we provide. So we are not dependent on the quality and the type of technology that the patient has, for example. We are not dependent on the patient's data and or whether they've got Wi-Fi access. We bring that to them, right? Part of our recent partnership with MTN is being able to go to them and say, look, here's an opportunity that as a telecommunications entity, you can actually play a role in helping us get there. In fact, when we were setting up and launching our service in PE and in the Townsend PE, Motherwell, and, and in all the others, we actually found pockets of, of, of poor connectivity. And based on our relationship with MTN, they were able to significantly enhance the signal so that, so that we are able to provide that kind of service. And, you know, we're not, uh, you know, our attitude and our approach as a company is not that we are this small player that is, is, is going to somehow do whatever is within our capacity and then we hope that the rest of the dominoes will fall into effect. We are very active in making sure that we get the relevant stakeholders to the table. Where there are connectivity issues, we're able to bring in a partner and say, look, we want to be able to provide this offering in these areas. It's a pity I can't, I, I can't talk about the specific technology, but there are, there are technologies that exist, for example, that allow the transmission of data from rural communities. A simple example of such technology is, is how people are still able to get both radio and television access, you know, despite being in those remote activities. 
there are ways for transmission of data that one can actually leverage those kind of, you know, the existing infrastructure without having to develop any additional, you know, in, in, in infrastructure in those spaces. And so as an entity, we are actively thinking about those kind of things, but we are doing so today, right? Not in the next future. But most importantly, part of our arrangement, um, and, I, and I'll use the Eastern Cape, you know, um, example, is understanding from an EMS perspective, you know, that you're not just limited to the, the kind of, you know, town area, but, you know, part of our commitment in our SLA arrangements is that these guys are able to reach patients and, and have, give us reasonable times in those remote, in those remote areas. I do want to say again, that this may not necessarily be for everyone at this stage, but I hope that the, my illustration of the example that I've given shows you our commitment as a company today to address these ongoing problems. I absolutely love what, what you said and what you said when we started off, you know, essentially don't, don't change your ideals, change your offering. Just because it's, it's a poor African country, you know, in poor African rural areas, doesn't mean that these technologies should bypass them. So absolutely support it. What would you say is your vision then for the future of health tech in, in South Africa and in low and middle income countries? I think my future is, is our ability to leverage technology to address day-to-day problems, right? To have that, you know, incorporated in the same way that we switch on our, our lights at home, in the same way that we're able to open the tap and water runs out, in the same way that today, you know, we're able to log onto platforms and access our money and transfer money, um, you know, to, to someone else who, who may be in a different bank. I think we've been able to, to achieve this in, 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 in sort of in, in different industries and different settings. But for some reason, we just haven't been able to you know, achieve this within the healthcare space. And I think there are massive opportunities for us to leverage technology, both from a, a, a prevention perspective, so to avoid us getting to this point, right through providing alternatives, which is where we are as a company, to our hospitalization right now, but also beyond that, you know, the, the, the care continuum. And, and, and really, for me, I, I always say that, you know, we want to use, you know, Cure Medical as a, as a vehicle for restorative justice. Uh, and part of what we wish to do and achieve, and this is, is not unique to South Africa, I guess is a problem in, in emerging markets, but also is a problem in the global, right, where healthcare is expensive. And so this becomes an opportunity for us to address this um, and leverage technology to be able to achieve all these things that ought to be right about healthcare. What are some of the obstacles and challenges you face? Especially, specifically, do you find any obstacles or challenges from healthcare providers themselves? Healthcare providers are probably the, the one group of people where we experience the least resistance. You know, one of the things I love about medicine is that um, despite all these perceived challenges, doctors actually generally, and, and other healthcare um, providers, generally want their best for their patients. And to the extent that there is an offering that, that allows them to achieve that aim, they are willing to definitely come on board. Um, that being said, you know, there is, um, I think, you know, behavior change is something worth considering, right? And, and you know, part of the things that we're thinking about right now as a company is around how do you keep cure top of mind? Those that have, have used it want to use it. Um, but if you are used to practicing in a particular manner, you know, it's not second nature. And so part of our role is how do we make sure that it is, given the fact that we're saying that there must be this shift in practice. But beyond that, I mean, I think we need to also speak to the realities of setting up a business, particularly as a black person in this country, 
right? Um, and you've got a guy like me who's, you know, who's checked all this stuff. You know, you've gone to Ivy League schools, you're well-educated, you speak and you sound like someone who should be at the table and, you know, and you've, you've gone all these things. However, you are expected to have gone to the moon, you know, at least twice, landed perseverance, been president of the United States three times, you know, um, and all of those things just to get an audience from someone to invest in your business. Mm. And I think that in the most frustrating. But beyond that, sometimes even, you know, getting customers, right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot easier for, for some of my, you know, entrepreneurial, you know, counterparts who don't look like me mm. to land these because the premise there is often that of trust that it can be done than someone else who has demonstrated this repeatedly, even historically, to do so. And it's one of the things that, you know, my wishes for this business is, is for us to, to succeed um, and so that I can go move on to my next step around, you know, um, transforming the VC and the funding space in this country, particularly for people that look like mine. I think those people, there are people who have brilliant ideas, who are sitting with solutions that can fundamentally change and improve the lives and the well-being of our people today. But the way in which the system is structured and the way the world is played does not necessarily provide a conducive environment to support those kind of black entrepreneurs. And I shudder to think what the experience must be like for them when you have a guy like me who thinks he has checked all the necessary stuff and is still falling short. I think it's incredibly inspiring. And I think that we need African solutions for African problems, for global problems. And for your experience that you, that you highlighted, your, your upbringing as from a single-headed household, from a township, and to experience so many challenges and then to contribute back so meaningfully and will so meaningfully contribute in the future. It's incredibly inspiring. And my hope is that the more people are aware of the work that you do, the more people will be inspired and we will see more black people and people of color thriving in this space and coming from the harsh environments that where the, the most transformative justice is needed. Uh, ending the solutions full circle so that you know transformative justice may take place so thank you very much for your time i think it's been a really insightful session i wish you everything of the best in the future thank you very much adil thank you very much for having me